our podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Life Fantastic, the podcast where people with disabilities talk about all things disability here on Straight Independent Radio. We are sponsored by neurodiversityconsulting.org and sanchia.org. Check us out on the web for all the great things that we do with people with developmental disabilities. I'm your host, the Idea Dynamo, Samantha Pierce, and I'm joined today by my regular co-hosts and colleagues, Liza Citron, future special education teacher and autistic disabled advocate, Scott Davis, disabled writer, speaker, and entrepreneur, and Dr. Jeremy Pierce, philosopher extraordinaire, and my husband and co-parent. Today we are talking about a topic that is familiar to everyone with a disability, and that is forced poverty. Now, what do I mean when I say forced poverty? Forced poverty is brought about by income caps and asset limits on federal and state programs for the services and support that people with disabilities need to be able to live their lives on a daily basis. Currently, the income caps for some programs are as low as $1,220 a month. If you have more money than that at the end of the month, you lose your benefits. Now, that works out to $14,640 a year. That's less than what you would make on minimum wage at $7.25 an hour working full time. Just for comparison, $15 an hour full time gives you $2,400 a month and you make $28,000 a year. So this really does force people with disabilities into a situation where they cannot acquire a nest egg to deal with emergencies. They can't build any wealth, so they can't get a job because if they do manage to get a job, they immediately lose the services that presumably help them get the job in the first place. So I want to, I put the question to you, what have you, how has the how has these, these kinds of income limits, and I was just talking about an income limit for one federal program. There are different limits for different programs and different states have different limits and different uh, federal programs have different limits on the amount of assets that you can hold, say like bank accounts, say checking and saving accounts, whether or not you have a vehicle, your home, those kinds of things can count against you in getting services. So for the rest of the group, Liza, Scott, and Jeremy, how have these income caps and asset limits impacted your lives? Liza, have, I'll start with you. Thank you. I have some, some personal experience with this, both being concerned about it for myself but also with my mother and as she's dealing with it with her mother, my grandmother. So my mother is after her cancer diagnosis, gotta be almost uh, 
four and a half, five years ago at this point. Um, after that diagnosis, she was unable to work. So she's getting SSDI, I think. It's either SSI or SSDI, but the particular program is irrelevant. There's only a certain amount that she is able to have either in a bank account or the house or they own a house that they inherited from my other grandmother. And it had to be put fully in my father's name because if it wasn't, it would count against her in terms of assets. And if, and the, the bank could come after it to, not the, the bank, Medicare rather, could come after it to get her to, to let me start that sentence before I put this. Medicaid could come after it because they deem her as only being able to have a certain amount, including bank accounts, house, any sort of asset. When she inherited from my great aunt, her aunt, when she passed, she had to set up a special needs trust, which is something that a lot of disabled people who in these situations have to do, which is basically a special needs trust in its basic terms is where you put the money that you have that's above the amount that the services require so that you don't lose it, so that they can't come after it. But that money is no longer controlled by you. You have to appoint a trustee, someone who oversees your money. In my mother's case, that's my father and essentially her because she's the one that manages it, even though it's in my father's name. Um, but it's, it's a method so that you can have these. Where did that go? I'm here. Oh, okay. All right. So, but you, Liza, you mentioned special needs trust, and I should note that Jeremy and I, we did set up a special needs trust for a couple of our kiddos. Oh yeah, he and several just, years he, ago. He and, and I were just talking about that yesterday. And one of the issues is that it costs money to set up those oh, special yeah. needs trusts. So people who have the means to pay for doing that do so, but that counts as another economic hit that is forced upon people with disabilities and their families by income caps and asset limits in state and federal programs. Now, Scott, I know you've been doing a lot of research yeah. into this issue. Tell me, what did you find? I found basically, I'm taking it from a macro on the economic level. When you take a look at disability, that's like 15% uh, of the population. And then you also have the caregivers that influence the money. So obviously you need a way to allow, because you have with that a multiplier effect, it, it impacts the economy and you have to have companies or even governments that allow brand development for people to have a wow. And even when I looked at something that said that the ADA that was established uh, 25 or so years ago has not really expanded opportunities for people. So it's a very, big topic and then there was a statement that disability is a cause of poverty and also the consequence of poverty so i have a lot of 
different things I've tossed out there. I don't know exactly where we want to take it. And then you have your idea of the forced poverty. So it very much can be. And I think we should note that, I mean, I'm a, I'm a very typical case of this. Not all disabled people are eligible for these programs. So either, even if they are not eligible for these programs and do not have to have the income tax, there's the constant concern then about being concerned that because of your disability, you will either not be able to work or you will be able to work, but no one will hire you, et cetera. So there's forced poverty for the people who are receiving those services, but there's also forced poverty in some ways in very different methods for these people who are not receiving the services as well. Yes, Liza, you bring up a great point in talking about the barriers to getting a job that that are in place for people with disabilities, because there are two there are two major influences that force people with disabilities into poverty. One of them is the income caps and asset limits. The other is transportation, wherein yep. people with disabilities do not have reliable transportation because public there, there's not the public transportation there. There are not enough disability accessible um, vehicles in fleets for, for the rideshare services like Uber and Lyft. And then on top of that, the exorbitant costs of adaptive vehicles and other adaptive equipment for people with disabilities. It's like somebody thinks that we're independently wealthy oh, yeah. and, can, <laughs> and can afford to pay tens of thousands of dollars for a car that maybe, you know, at most maybe costs $20,000. Not even, not even a car, much less I'm, I use a wheelchair sometimes for those listeners who don't know, and any accessories needed for the wheelchair, for example, a different propulsion method to save damage on your shoulders, even that can cost around that amount, which uh, doesn't make sense. Hmm. It just doesn't make sense. But I think we also have to note with transportation, that if you are, and this is an issue that doesn't just apply to disabled people, it applies to people who are job searching in general. If you don't have a job, you may not have the money necessary to spend all your time paying for bus fare or other fare, whether it's cab, Uber, et cetera, to get to job interviews. So it's kind of a vicious cycle. Mm. Yes. I'm glad that you mentioned that the, the cyclical nature of this, it's one thing after another, after another compounding to make everything so much more difficult and to basically force people into poverty because they have to do that calculus of, do I, do I go for the job that will, will allow me to accrue the assets needed to get some adaptive equipment for myself so I can get around easier but if I do that, if I save too much money, then I will lose the benefits that I need to live every day. So it's this vicious cycle. And it's not that people don't know about this. 
it seems to be that there's not the, the political will to change the status quo. You were gonna say, Scott? Yeah, I understand with transportation, uh, especially when I used to uh, work in Milford and when we were uh, pending a move, that was one of my major concerns. I ended up having to spend almost four, four and a half hours a day going from my house down to Bridgeport, then up to the yep. mall of Milford, and then to my job site, and a little like five minute walk to the office. So it was an adventure just trying to get there. But also we need to educate, education and all these elements that we're talking about on the podcast. We need to educate people because it's statistically that the disabled are at a greater, more likely to be poor. Mm -hmm. And that's just, uh, and not likely to be working. And then there's the issues of insecurity for food, how they're gonna pay the expenses. Mm -hmm. I think it's also important to note that not only are disabled people often forced into poverty, but anyone around them, whether, whether that be parents, siblings who are caring for them, or especially anyone that they are interested in as a partner, those people are forced into poverty as well or are not allowed to be a partner to the person that they want to because their income either would disqualify the people they love for the services because they're counted as part of their income and it's immediately, <laughs> the way I see it, it's basically the government saying, oh yeah, now you can pay for them. Yeah, but I still have to pay for myself. Yeah. So you mentioned so what you mentioned is is kind of like that marriage penalty, wherein the income caps and asset limits are so low that people are forced into making decisions about can we stay married, can we get married? Oh, and it's not even it's not even necessarily marriage. There are some states and some programs that qualify if you are living like you are married or if you are living together or if you, anything like that, even without any sort of civil partnership or anything, they can deem you are living as though you are together and partners are married or whatever. And therefore you're not our responsibility anymore. You're the responsibility and your needs and things that you need to survive, whether that's a wheelchair, services, etc., are no longer our responsibility. Let's just force them off on your partner instead. So it's not even if you necessarily, if you're married, it's if you even, even so much as cohabitating. Hmm. Jeremy, what do you have to say about this this fact of forced poverty and the fact that a, a lot of these these rules of these income caps and asset limits they're 40 years old and you know lawmakers have ha, have not had the political will up until this point to change those yeah 
Yeah, I mean, technically speaking, it isn't a it isn't a forced poverty on people with disabilities. It's a forced poverty on people with disabilities with low enough income that they can't afford the services they need. But because the limits are so low, that isn't just people who are poor. <laughs> it's people who are lower middle limits, class, really. Because the limits are so low and the services so costly as well. Mm. Right. And so people who, who, who are firmly in the middle class face a huge burden in trying to get the, the, the services that they need because they can't afford them. And, um, and yes. sure, someone who has a lot of wealth already, I can understand why the government would say, well, you can afford this. Sure, that's a burden they have that other people don't have. But I mean, you could make it, I mean, you could make an argument that this is something that the government has an obligation to provide for anyone with disabilities, regardless of, of their, their income or their wealth. But um, there's only so much money to go around, right? And uh, I mean, I, I think on the on the most conservative end, you're going to have people saying the government doesn't have any obligation to provide this for anyone. But that's not where most Americans are. Most Americans think that in the case of disabilities, especially people who can't work, or people whose ability to work is severely impeded, uh, having a safety net and a, a, a system in place that can help provide for them in ways that they can't provide for themselves is an obligation of the American people. That, 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 that is the view I think of most Americans. And yes, there's, there's degrees of that and where you're gonna draw the line and, and, and all that kind of thing. But I think you, um, everywhere from the far left to the center right, <laughs> I guess, maybe not the, the, the far right, but that's the view that you would have. And so it's someone like a George W. Bush or um, uh, uh, sort of the mainstream of where the Republican Party was 15, 20 years ago would have been fully on board with trying to support the um, better ways for, for someone with disabilities to get services from the government. Well, the, the fact that you bring up that you know, there, there are people who think that it's appropriate to limit in, income and assets for people receiving public services. That is something that people are looking at, and it doesn't always work the way that we think. So I'm going to read a, an excerpt from an article from the Center for American Proce Progress that addresses this, this forced poverty, talking about the impact of the asset limits, especially in the time of COVID. The, these limits are purportedly in place to ensure that only the neediest people receive benefits. In practice, however, they set up a perverse and counterintuitive incentive structure that compels people to spend down their monthly earnings or risk having their benefits cut. Put simply, benefit recipients are forced to compromise their long-time economic security by depleting their existing savings in order to attain the immediate and life-sustaining relief these benefit programs provide. So let's tackle that for a little bit. There is this, there is this sense that we should limit services to only the neediest people. Okay, we get that. 
but the way that it's being done is actually making people more needy and leading people to make economic choices that are not actually good for them, that makes them more dependent on these services. So how do we address that? Didn't they actually remove the resources requirement for, I think maybe it was food stamps for that very reason? Some states have done, done that. Oh, oh that's state by state? Uh, yes, a handful of states have done that. They have some flexibility with SNAP and have benefits. Th they love their acronyms. Oh. <laughs> some states have some states have some flexibility, and some states have removed resource uh, limits, asset caps, to make more to make the benefit available to more people. And when they do that, what happens is that people are able to hang on to a little bit more of their cash so they can have checkings and savings accounts. They can save for a rainy day. They can begin to maybe do a little bit of wealth building because they don't have to get rid of all their money to be able to, to have access to the supports that they need. So let's talk a little bit about this, this vicious cycle where people are, are forced to spend down every month so that they can get you know the, these, these meager benefits next month. And let's be honest, y'all, some of these programs, some of what they're providing, it's not that much. In 2020, the maximum federal benefit for individuals in SSI programs was $783 a month. According to the Center for American Progress, that's nearly three quarters the federal poverty line. Nobody's getting rich off of these benefits. <laughs> you know, you can, th this is like, it's not even a bare minimum amount that these benefits are. It's less than that. Oh, no, my, my mother's dealt with this. She, she's unable to work. She's getting SSI. But my father is also autistic and can sometimes have trouble. A lot of his employment has been part-time or substitute on a substitute basis, that sort of thing. Now, thankfully, he has a full-time position at the school. But before that, they were really having trouble dealing with it because yeah, if he is having trouble working, or even if he's working a full-time job, and she is making, as you said, 75 at most percent of the poverty line, that's going to cause you to struggle with everything. And there, I mean, there certainly is something to be said about if you can make more money than what they're going to provide for you, it's in your advantage to do so, but how, how many people are there? It's a large percentage of people with disabilities who can't work full time mm -hmm. or ha have trouble finding something that's full time. Yep. Someone who's willing to hire them full time. And with some cases of disability, they'll pay them less than minimum wage. Yes. Legally, <laughs> because yeah they have these exceptions that allow for that. There are people who might suggest, well, just get a job that pays you more than those benefits and then you, 
there's no point in having the benefits, right? It's not that it's easy. Better off. But yeah, it's yeah. not always that easy, depending on the person and their their capabilities and their their abilities to function for a long enough time to work a full work day, oh, their yeah. abilities to learn the skills necessary to work a full work day. And some are not going to be able to have a job anyway. My the the so. amount I've had to try to find a job because I can't do school this semester. Uh, I'm at Syracuse University and the number of jobs that I'm limited to, in my case, it's it's one of the biggest limiting factors is physical disability, uh, not being able to stand for long periods, that sort of thing. But that's severely limited what jobs I can work. And I'm also consistently concerned about once I get my education degree, or even before I do, do I show up to interviews in my using my chair, representing that, hey, I may have to do this sometimes, or do I show up not using it, not using any, any mobility aids for that matter, mm -hmm. and then risk when I show up in using my wheelchair, their re reactions. So mm -hmm. it's incredibly difficult, whether, you, whether your disability is invisible or otherwise, to make these decisions to figure out, okay, can I get a job? How do I get a job? And if I can, will I lose eligibility for the very things that make me able to work? Yeah. And looking into this issue of forced poverty at the, that's, that's caused by the, the income limits and the asset caps, these aren't, it's not, and the barriers aren't things that are inherent to having a disability. The no. barriers are a function of the way that government is trying to help, in that there seems to be this mindset that you have to be poor enough to deserve help, and we're going to make sure that you stay poor enough to deserve help. And you know because you deserve help well you are you're less valuable to society it's 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 that ableism creeping in wherein because people need help well you've got to jump through all these extra hoops you've got to do all these extra things and the problem isn't the disability the problem is all those extra hoops and all those barriers put forth now, chronic, uh, uh, chronic illness Mm -hmm. you have this extra time to take it up by doctor's appointments and I mean for certain for certain things going through everything you need to go through as a disabled person is already at, at the very least a part-time job mm. for which you don't get paid yeah now, another issue with the way that social services are provided is the, the, the criminalization of being poor and the increased surveillance by the government, in particular law enforcement, that people have to put up with. Yep. It's not a crime to be poor and to need help. It's not a crime to be disabled and to need help. Let's, let's just make that clear. Being poor does not mean that you give up your right to privacy. Having a disability does not mean that you give up your right 
to privacy. So these are all issues that advocates are looking at and pointing out like that this is not okay to do to people because they need help. Uh, I have some- Go ahead, Scott. That are running through my head. Uh, I'll just hit a couple of them and then we can discuss. There's your issue of funding. Also, it's a tightrope and we have really a shared responsibility to sort of redistribute things. It's an opportunity cost. And also like with veterans, people serve, serve and a lot of veterans are also disabled. So those are just a few things that, are, that ran through my head. Mm -hmm. The weird mm -hmm. thing about that one is though, is on the one hand you're not, but on the other hand, if you're a veteran, your disability is seen to be more justified than mm. people who, and it's not necessarily, and it's not necessarily seen that way always because let's be honest, this country treats veterans mm, not so, so well. Words, and, I'm and, not, words I'm not gonna yeah. say. But and and Scott, you, you said, is, sorry. That you said something there that, you know, <laughs> It's stuck in my head because it's something that will trigger a lot of people. You talked about redistributing funds and you know, some people are gonna freak out because wait a minute, that sounds like communism, that sounds socialist. Okay, calm down, seriously, calm <sighs> down. This isn't, this isn't the time to be drawing you know, lines into political camps. It is time to be thinking what is our government doing to the people that it has a responsibility to? And if we make them owners, if we make them owners into possibly the uh, making those decisions, I mean, it's yeah. a very complicated, I saw some things that had like 80, 90 pages. I just looked at a couple pages because mm. I wasn't about to go deep into the weeds. But yeah. some of it I don't even understand. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what you get with research studies and other papers. And and actually, yeah, that's what you get when you get into academia. <laughs> yeah, Scott, that's a great point wherein all the rules and regulations about what people trying to get services can and cannot do, how much you know money they, they can and cannot have, and how many resources they can and cannot have, is it's this bureaucratic nightmare, a quagmire, and it is another undeserved burden, undue burden that people with disabilities and their families have to put up with because no two programs agree <laughs> on yeah. anything. And, and um, we, they're, they're, they're constantly changing and not in the favor of people who need help. Yeah. I and even I, went- Yeah, go ahead, Scott. When I went to programs, especially when I, I tied to a program that I believed in the county center. And then I also was with Bureau of Rehab. Now the Bureau of Rehab and Aging, literally every five or six months, they changed one of the counselors. Mm. And then when I went to a job here, I said, okay, I'll do this, but then give the information and hope they might help. So it's, I've seen through just observation and trial and seeing what it's all out there, I can understand that the trouble that a lot of people go through. Yeah. I'm an in this area. And the, the amount of paperwork 
yeah. that, oh, that you go. have to fill out all the records you have to keep. This is again, that increased surveillance. You have to prove to them that, that you or your family is impacted enough to be able to qualify for these services. And they're asking for all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Like, you know, extended family, how much money do they, do they have? Do they ever give you money? And that could be Why a job the government's business. Yeah. Filling that stuff out and, and, and getting these services can be a full-time job in and of itself when even when they're expecting you, oh, you know, if, if you're not happy with this, get a job. This is a, getting these services is often you invest the amount of time and mental energy mm. that you would spend in a, in a full-time job and you don't get paid for it and even when you yes. do it's not much yes it is it is forced unpaid labor that can equal a full-time job I, i've been at this game for 20 years now and yeah if I, ever, if I had ever been paid for all the time I spent filling out applications, yes. gathering letters from school, from the doctor's office, from family, from friends, from, from all the different specialists that they see, we'd be in a much better place financially if I had been compensated for all that work. But people with disabilities and their families are expected to do all of that administrative work you know, we're, we're expected to like magically make hours in the day to do all that for these meager benefits. And then we have to figure out, okay, well, how do we juggle our assets and our income such that we can still qualify for these services? And then you have to take care of your kiddos. Yes. And while, your other parts of life. Yes, while also taking care of your family and keeping your house in order and having a, a you know an actual job where they pay you so this this is a this really is a deck that deck that's stacked against people with disabilities and their families and it doesn't have to be that way in fact there in 2020 just before everything went sideways with yeah the coronavirus, um, there was a, a bill introduced in, I believe it was the Senate called the ASSET Act. I oh, love these acronyms. So ASSET stands for allowing steady savings by eliminating tests. And basically what that act does is it eliminate asset limits for some of these federal programs that keep snagging people and dragging them back into poverty. It also raises asset limits for SSI in particular to, from 2000 for an individual to 3000 and for a couple from 10,000 to 20,000 a month. So people can actually make enough money to live on and save enough, enough money to get through a crisis. Now, this was at the beginning of the, the pandemic, as the pandemic began to, hit, began to hit the US. Now, everybody would think, okay, yeah, this is great. Let people keep more of their money so they can actually live. No, no. It died. 
it yeah. died in, in in the in the you know the bickering between the Senate and the Congress in 2020. Uh, folks are trying oh, to bring it. Yeah, folks are trying to bring it back. It never got out of the committee. It got sent to to uh, the committees in the Senate and the Congress and stayed there. Um, again, 2021, folks are bringing it back. And as of July 15th, it's still languishing in committees. I wish so, I was surprised. <laughs> and because the Senate and Congress are so dysfunctional right now, I think that's part of why this bill isn't going anywhere. It's also really yeah. disturbing that there are no Republicans sponsoring it. Guys, come on. Letting Americans keep more of their money? That seems like, you know, it fits with the 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 Republican platform. Except this means that you're making your opinions on disabled people clear. That and that's entrepreneurship too. Yes, yes. It, it makes sense to what I'm saying we're distributing it is is helping people. And also you have to look at there's a large wealth because if you take a fifth of the uh or one at 15 percent you almost have one of like the big countries like india it's a huge or china where we have a huge number of people that influence it because if a country like the u.s didn't help the world with COVID or whatever everything would be in a bad situation or or allies didn't help after a war to rebuild nothing would happen so you need that help whether it's war whether it's covid yeah i also think it's important to note that that three hundred three thousand dollar limit and that ten thousand dollar limit especially the ten thousand dollar limit for couples while well, it's the, not the, great the, the current limit for couples is ten thousand dollars this this bill should it pass would raise that to 20,000. Yeah, that that 20,000 increase while not great, current income limits can often keep disabled people, disabled couples where either one or both members are disabled who want to start a family, who want to have kids from doing that because they simply can't afford it. Yes. And that shouldn't be, that shouldn't be, I mean, say what you want about establishing yourself and getting money, but your disability itself shouldn't be the reason that you're not able to have kids. And, and it, it's not even the disability itself. It's the way that disabled people are treated. Exactly. That's the problem. In the eyes of the government, it's the disability itself, but you being disabled and the government treating you the way it does shouldn't be the reason that you are not able to have kids. Yeah. So I, I want to get back to this this asset asset act, which would remove a lot of barriers to disabled people and their families having economic mobility, financial security some basic human dignity and respect. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's again, it is languishing in committee again. So folks, call your senators, call, call your Congress people, uh, call your state reps, whoever they are, 
and let them know that we want to treat people with disabilities with dignity and respect and stop forcing people into situations where they have to choose poverty in order to continue getting help. Mm -hmm. And that's really how this works. You're making people choose poverty so that they can get the support that they need to be able to live their daily lives. And even then that support that you're giving is pretty meager, it's pretty measly, to be honest. But creating a situation where people can accrue the assets that they need to be able to lift themselves out of poverty, be engaged economically, build wealth for themselves and their families. And we're talking, we're not talking about extravagant wealth here. We're talking about things like being able to pay the, buy food, pay your rent or mortgage and buy clothing. Should somebody not be able to work for mm, the duration of a pandemic? Oh, and, and that's that Maslow's needs that we've talked about before. Yes. Yes. I love that you keep connecting things back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, Scott, because that, yes, that is what this is, what this is about. That should be the foundation, the guiding principle of making sure that people's basic needs are met and, 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 giving, and, and giving them space to be able to build themselves up as they work their way up through that hierarchy, giving them the support so that they don't actually have to do that all by themselves. One of the things that is a, is a continuing issue is that there's this stigma around needing help, wherein people with, with disabilities are stigmatized for being lazy, deceptive, unworthy for seeking support. How many times during this pandemic did we see people complaining that people were experiencing an economic crisis? Yep. And how many times have we seen people complaining that their people receiving unemployment benefit unemployment benefits yep. during the pandemic? Hello, so, it's a pandemic. So often when you're not able to work, people just assume you don't want to work. Yes. No, that's not that's not the way it works. That's not how that works. That's not how any of this works. And <laughs> and even even after I get a degree in certification in education, I'll, I, I, I no doubt I'm going to have to face that. And it's like, no, I went to school specifically so that I can get a job in this field. It's not that I don't want to work. I no one will hire me. I can't work, etc. So stop it. Um, I'm going to have to pause here to do some parenting. All right. <laughs> okay, back on clock. I, I, I have I've completed the parenting break. So there, there is a lot that there, there seems to be a raising a rising consciousness um, among people who aren't necessarily in the disability community about what these asset limits um, and income caps are doing to disabled people and doing to, to people in poverty in general. It's basically keeping them there, creating this underclass. 
So folks, I'm going to share all of this information in the description when, so that you can read up on the Asset Act, also the ABLE Act, which is another workaround for people with disabilities to save some money for, you know, stuff that happens. Um, the issue with the ABLE Act is that it caps the age of onset at 26. So if you become disabled after the age of 26, you are out of luck. <laughs> it's like that they, no one, when they wrote this, they didn't think about the fact that anyone can become disabled at any point in their lives. Yep. So I'll share with, I'll share the information about the ABLE Act and the Asset Act. And I encourage you again to con contact your state and federal elected officials and drop a bug in their ear about, we need to remove the, raise the income caps. We need to remove the asset limits so that people need help can, that need help can get the help that they need. I want to thank you everyone for joining us for the Life Fantastic podcast where people with disabilities talk about all things related to disability. And particularly today, we talked about forced poverty and the impact of income caps and asset limits for federal, assist, federal and state assistance. We are here on Straight Independent Radio. You can check out the website at straight with an eight, indieradio.us for features, exclusive features, bonus clips, and all that other good stuff. We are sponsored by Neurodiversity Consulting and Sentia.org. Check us out online for all the great things that we do with people with developmental disabilities. Thank you, Liza, Scott, and Jeremy for having the talk with us today about forced poverty. And we will tune in next time with another great topic that's relevant to people with disabilities, selected by people with disabilities. Have a great one, folks.